everyone. Welcome to episode 140 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And it is a gorgeous fall day today here on the Connecticut shoreline. We're so happy to be together. We were separated for about a week because Miss Emily went on vacation with the gentleman caller. I did. We had a grand time. We really, really did. I'll talk more about it. And we wanted to thank everybody who gave us some suggestions for our fourth quarter read-along. We are going to be doing another nonfiction. 2021 has been all about nonfiction for us. And we'll be announcing that title at the end of this episode. Stay tuned. Also at the end of this episode, our mystery man, John Valeri, stopped by via Zoom to overwhelm your TBRs once again. (laughs) He has so many great suggestions. So that's coming up at the end. We always tell people to don't panic. We're all kind of fast talkers, but we do put everything he mentions into the show notes for this episode. So you don't have to try to scribble or keep rewinding. Just go to bookcougars.com and all the information is there for each episode. So this is episode 140. Every 10th episode, we do a giveaway. In order to be eligible to win the books in this giveaway, you just have to subscribe to the newsletter. That's it. And you can do that by going to bookcougars.com slash subscribe. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So should we tell them the list of the four books we're giving away? Yeah, let's. Do you want me to just read them? Yes. Okay. Great. We have The Archer by Shruti Swami. Choose Me by Tess Gerritsen and Gary Braver, When All the Girls Are Sleeping by Emily Arsenal, and Fault Lines by Emily Atami. It's an Emily fest here. <laughs> I just noticed that as I was reading them. And these are all hardcover books. They're all just beautiful, and we look forward to giving them away to a lucky listener. And we'll choose the winner, I think, next week. Let's Mm -hmm. do it next week and really give people time to subscribe or hear this episode. That sounds good. And what we do is we look at the number of subscribers we have, and then Emily tells me the number, and then I use random.com to pick a number. And then we look and see who that person is. And if they've won before, we just pick another number. Yeah, Yeah, which hasn't happened yet, I don't think. Maybe it has. I don't remember. I think it happened once. Oh, it happened once. Yeah. Okay. But and then I tell the lucky winner to go play the lottery with that <laughs> number. So um, stay tuned and we will announce the winner on episode 141. So Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading The Sundial by Shirley Jackson. This is a 1958 novel. Shirley Jackson is well known for We Have Always Lived in a Castle, The Haunting of Hill House, the short story, The Lottery. I remember reading The Lottery in high school. And when I got to that ending, you know, I was just like, what the? I was like, wow, I'm not in grade school anymore. You know, this is the kind of stuff they're having us read. I won't say much about the sundial. I am more than halfway through it and really enjoying it. I was going through a phase where books weren't sticking. Novels weren't sticking, I should say. And this one totally is. And I'm digging it. And I'll talk more next time. That sounds great. And we did a little Shirley Jackson biblio adventure up in Bennington, Vermont. And maybe I'll put a link to the show notes because we did it as a video. We did a video. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I didn't know about Shirley Jackson until I went to Vermont for a booktopia. And then I learned all about her. I'm reading Bewilderment by Richard Powers. This is the new one just out by Richard Powers. He's the author of many books, including The Overstory, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, this book is breaking my heart already, and I'm only halfway through. 
It's about a young boy who's neurodiverse and his father, who's an astrophysicist. And the young boy is very enamored of nature and is very affected by climate change. And um, it's really breaking his heart. So it breaks your heart along with him. And it just makes you realize there's a little nod to Greta Thunberg, the climate activist that's out and about in the world right now. He doesn't use her name, but it's definitely a nod to how young people are forcing all of us to look at climate change. That's as much as I know about it so far. I'm really enjoying his writing. All right. Now, is that one a chunkster like the last one? No, it's... No, I think it's just over 200 pages or just under 300, something like that. It's very reasonable. Overstory was quite a commitment. I loved it, but it was a commitment to read. Yeah, it's mine copyist patiently waiting on my shelves. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good one. What else are you reading? I'm reading Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket by Hilma Wolitzer. It's a great title. Amazing title, right? And this is a book of short stories. I've never heard of Hilma Wolitzer. She is Meg Wolitzer's mother. Oh, cool. Yeah, who's a renowned novelist in her own right. And I found out about Hilma Wolitzer because our buddy Carolyn Lovett interviewed her on A Mighty Blaze. And I was like, who is this woman? And what a title, like you said, right? It just catches your eye. So what this is, is a set of short stories. And they're throughout the last, I think the first one is dated 1964 or something like that. So it's a compilation of short stories she's written over time. And then a recent one in 2021. Sadly, her husband passed away from COVID. She and her husband were in New York City, not that COVID has gone away, but during the real lockdown period, and he passed away. Mm -hmm. And she spoke about that in the interview. I haven't gotten to the last story. Her husband is, you know, they're all fiction, but he kind of is referred to in one of the short stories already that I've read. Fantastic writer. Oh my gosh, lots of brevity, which I appreciate. And this book has a foreword by Elizabeth Strout, the author of Olive Kittredge, who is a big fan. Yeah, That's cool. Nice. Yeah. Again, that's called Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket by Hilma Wolitzer. Chris, what did you just read? Well, I finished the graphic novel I talked about last time, Shadow Life by Hiromi Gatto and Anne Zhu. This just came out in 2021, and it is about Kumiko, who's a 76-year-old woman who's widowed, and her three daughters have put her in an an assisted living facility, and she's not happy there, and she takes off. This is a story of her finding her place and fighting against death, which is a literal thing Mm -hmm. in the book. Along the way, she reconnects with her first love, a woman named Alice, She makes friends with the landlord and the vacuum cleaner woman and kind of starts her own community in some ways. Like you see it at the end. I don't want to give any spoilers. Maybe that was spoilery already, but it's drawn in black and white. I just love it because she's short and plump. And to see an an old woman in her 70s who's kind of kicking ass and fighting for herself It's really great. You don't see that very often in literature of any type. Most of the time, old women are the butt of the joke or they're the evil witch to avoid. So this is really exciting. I've been thinking about this book since you talked about it on the last episode. It's so funny. I had questions I wanted to ask and I realized that I would get a chance because you would be talking about it again. You know, it's such an interesting thing because when parents get to a certain age, there is role reversal and children are often tasked with 
helping parents make tough decisions or even having to make them for them. So when you said she escaped from assisted living, I was like, oh, that's like, what would you do as a child if your mother went on the lamb and you felt like it was better for her to be in assisted living? Or did she get put in assisted living prematurely and really didn't belong there? Yeah, it's maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, perhaps she has three daughters and one of them is really annoying and a little bit too nosy and controlling. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And as I said in the last episode, the mother says at one point, you know, I didn't interfere with your life. I let you live your life. Please let me live mine. Yeah. And I think it comes down to that too. There is some creepiness though, because death is a literal thing Mm -hmm. that takes different shapes. And then there's this whole spider thing happening at one point. So trigger alert for spiders. <laughs> if you have arachnophobia, is that what it's called? <laughs> right, yeah. But I really enjoyed it. And again, that Shadow Life, it is a graphic novel. It is over 300 pages. It's pushing 350. Wow. So it's a larger one, but a pretty quick read. As I mentioned in the last episode, there's not a ton of text. It is more graphic visuals. So again, that Shadow Life by Hiromi Gato and Anzu. I read The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. This is a chunkster. It's a really long book. I really ended up loving it, though. What's unusual about it is it's narrated by a book. <laughs> it's about Benny and Annabelle. Benny is the son. Annabelle's the mother. The father, this is not a spoiler because it happens right away. The father is killed in the alley behind their house. He's hit by a truck carrying a load of chickens. And he's under the influence, so he's not quite of right mind when it happens. Then the rest of the novel is really about both the mother and the son experiencing grief in their own ways. And the way that Benny experiences it is by having auditory hallucinations. So everything starts talking to him, which makes him feel like he's going insane. And at one point, he actually gets put into a mental hospital Mm. where he meets some people who end up becoming characters in the book as well. There's so many themes in this book. I mean, Ruth Ozeki definitely is a master of her craft. I wanted to read just a couple things. So one of the characters in the book is a library also. (laughs) He ends up spending a ton of time at the library and Annabelle had wanted to become a librarian and was in the process of studying to be one when she ended up having a child and had to change paths. And so I thought this was interesting, Chris, that in 2005, the library board voted to build a new main branch of the public library. They put out a call for proposals and a famous architect won the commission with a diabolical plan that was hailed as visionary, a postmodern statement and which entailed the raising of our beloved old library. The plan also called for the deaccessioning Weeding is the term of our most vulnerable number, and needless to say, we were horrified. So that gives you insight. That's the book talking, right? Yeah. About the experience of being a book that might be weeded out. Jeez. <laughs> and then I also wanted to read this part. Here's where the book is talking to Benny. That fly on the wall isn't a coping tool, Benny. It's the sound of a young person finding his voice. And in the world of books, this is nothing short of a miracle. When a young boy finds his voice or a young girl tells her own story for the first time, these are causes for great celebration. And all of us, from the most ancient tablets inscribed in clay to the cheapest dime store paperbacks, take note and rejoice, because without your voices, we wouldn't exist. 
So listen, it's happening right now as we speak, but it's important not to rush. These things take time and we must go slow. (laughs) So that's an example of Ruth Ozeki's writing. Some of the themes that she covers are, you know, the importance of libraries, the importance of books, grief. There's also a whole thread of Zen Buddhism and also the Marie Kondo thing of cleaning, which I talked about last time because the mother in this story is a hoarder. But that starts to get resolved as the book goes on. So again, it's called The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. Some people have reached out to me in Goodreads. Is it worth it? Because it is a big book. It is worth it. Give it a read or a listen. Great. I love your beat up copy. Yeah. (laughs) It has a lot going on in a lot of tabs. I could read to you much more, but I won't. (laughs) Well, I finished the audio book I was listening to. Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature by Farah Jasmine Griffin. This just came out recently in September. It was a really great listen, I have to say. It's memoir built around primarily black literature, but there is a lot of black culture as well. Her family, music, gardening, food. And I was completely wanting to highlight everything, which you can't do in an audiobook. So I do imagine I'm going to get a hard copy soon because there are some books that she talked about that I am not familiar with, some that have been on my TBR for way too long, and some that I definitely have enjoyed. And I really appreciated the comparisons that she made, comparing books to one another, looking at similarities between them. She is a professor of literature. So that adds a lot of authority. And I enjoyed her voice. So she's the author. The performance was a little uneven. And sometimes her voice goes down in some recordings and could just be the recording level. I'm not really sure. So I did have to adjust my sound here and there. Interesting. Yeah. But overall, I really enjoyed it. And I highly recommend it. I think it's a great overview of 20th century African-American literature, some 19th century and earlier. And if you want to learn more about African-American literature, definitely check it out. Sounds really good. I'm glad that you put that one on my radar. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. Again, the title is Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature by Griffin. And that thing, read until you understand, that was something that her father had written in one of the books. Because as I said in the last episode, he passes away when she's nine. And he had been the one who really turned her on to literature. So that is a really meaningful phrase for her entire life. So interesting, too, that you have to imagine that his early death and that being such a passion of his really influenced her and made her pursue literature, I would think, in a way to both bond with him and Mm -hmm. understand him, maybe. Absolutely. And the way he died and what happened with the police who came is unfortunately still reflected in what happens to African-American families when white police officers show up. Mm. They said, oh, he's drunk. Mm. No, he wasn't drunk. He was, you know, having an an aneurysm or a stroke. Mm. And we've seen cases like that. And then when they're transporting him. They didn't secure the stretcher, so he had more injuries during that ride. Mm, so it's just beyond heartbreaking. It's maddening and infuriating that we're still seeing the same things happening. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, thanks again for pointing that book out to me. I didn't know anything about it. I read The Inheritance of Orchieta Divina by Zoraida Cordova. 
I didn't know anything about this book and I happened upon it at our local little free library in downtown Guilford. I took it with me on vacation because it said, perfect for fans of Alice Hoffman, Isabel Allende, and Sarah Addison Allen. So I dug right in and it was the perfect vacation read. It was so good. It's about a woman, Orqueda Divina, and Orqueda is the word for orchid in Spanish. This is a family that hailed from Ecuador. When we meet Orqueda, she's living in the middle of nowhere in the United States, and we don't know why. And she summons all of her offspring, really, and related family to her home in the middle of nowhere, USA, and they all arrive. It's her last day. And they kind of got an invitation. And you can tell immediately by the way they got their invitations, this is a book filled with magical realism. Mm. And they arrive and she has turned into a tree (laughs) that can still speak. The beginning of the book has a great family tree. I'm going to show it to Chris. I mean, this book started to fall apart as I was reading it because I went back to the family tree so often. It shows all of her progeny and then their children. And the main characters become her granddaughter, Marimar, and grandson, Raimundo. She gives them an inheritance when they arrive. And some of them think it's going to be, you know, like a wad of cash. It turns out not to be that. And what it is, is kind of discovering who they are and who the family is and how the grandmother ended up being there. I wanted to read this one little passage. Some of her writing is so beautiful, and she's well known for a YA series called the Brooklyn Bruja series, which I've never heard of, and I'm going to look up now. But when she's speaking of families, when they all come together, she says, families were the same in certain ways. There were those who felt too much, those who felt too little, and others who knew how to deal with those feelings. Amen, right? (laughs) And then not all the family members are nice. So one of them arrives. This is her son, Enrique. And he's not very nice. And what he wants is the wad of cash. So someone says, where did Enrique go? And the answer is, he's off somewhere being an anthropomorphized bag of dicks. (laughs) (laughs) Which this is saying a lot, but I think might be the best sentence I've ever read in a book. Isn't that hilarious? That is. I will say I read that to the gentleman caller. He didn't think it was as funny as I did. (laughs) (laughs) And then as they're starting to discover the family history and how Orchieta arrived where she is, Marimar thinks, who are you? Why didn't you try to tell me sooner? What broke your heart so completely that its splinters found their way through generations? Oh, my God. I just love that sentence. Love, love this book. If you like magical realism, a little bit of an adventure because these two grandchildren end up going to Ecuador to learn about her past and how the grandmother ended up where she did and became a tree. I highly recommend this book. Again, it's called The Inheritance of Orqueda Divina by Zoraida Cordova. Beautiful cover. Oh, so beautiful. And is that out now? It is out now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yay for little free libraries. Yes, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my next read was another audio, and it's of a book that I read and talked about 
way back on episode five and six. Oh my! <laughs> so I was like, "Wow, that kicking really it was old long school." Ago. Totally. <laughs> so I listened to Carmilla by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu. It's an Audible original production that was dramatized by Robin Brooks, and it was performed primarily by Phoebe Fox, Rose Leslie, and David Tennant, with some others. Wow. So Carmilla is a vampire story, and it's one of the early ones, and it has a bit of like lesbianism happening, which, you know, at the time, I mean, it's period homophobia that's happening to make the story more tantalizing and risque and, you know, the dark side. But the way they perform it, oh my God, it is hot. Well, I mean, that's such a group of actors right there. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I will listen to this again. I I really, I was looking for something short because I'm driving back and forth to Mount Holyoke on Saturdays. And it's just a couple hours. It's, It's not very long. So I'm listening, driving up, it's daytime and sunny. Driving home, it's dark. From about halfway from Middletown, Connecticut, which we've mentioned in the past, which is like, you know, middle of the state practically. From Middletown to Guilford, it's pretty much two-lane highways winding through yeah. pretty much the forest, Wooded. right? Yeah. Yes. So I'm listening to this <laughs> and it's sexy and it's scary and it's dark and there's no cars around. And then I get to a town called Durham. And fog starts rolling in. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, (laughs) you know? And so I had such an enjoyable listening experience because I was, you know, I was scared, even though I know the story, because their performance is so excellent. Oh, that's the best. Yeah, I Mm. highly recommend it. I know the whole issue of it being an Audible original and you have to pay for Audible. I know that's not the greatest, but Laura and I, we do still have our Audible. Yeah. And I am grateful for this dramatic adaptation because it really brought the story to life. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really good. I can still hear her voice in my head. Yeah. I was going to say time and place as we talk about with books is so important. And with the audiobooks, it's then the added you know, narration aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For you. Oh, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have another thing? I do. Read? Oh, good. Yeah. I read a book. This is for my book club, and it's called Mrs. March. I showed the cover to Chris at, I think, the end of the last episode. It has these this woman with bright green gloves on. It's by Virginia Fado. Oh, my God. This book is dark, y'all. Really? Yeah. And I would have put it down, but my book club is this weekend only because I didn't really want to be reading a dark book on vacation. Mm. But I knew when I got back from vacation, I wouldn't have time to get it read before a book club. It's about George March and Mrs. March. George is a very famous novelist. Mrs. March is his wife. And his new book comes out and Mrs. March is at the bakery purchasing bread and she overhears titillating conversation where people are talking about the protagonist, Johanna, of George March's new book and how she's a little bit of a reprehensible character, wondering if she was loosely based on his wife. Mm. She's mortified, scurries out of the store Really, the rest of the book is about her unraveling, to be honest with you. Because of the story? Because of the story and her not knowing, she just starts to kind of almost get eaten away because people are celebrating this book. 
they host a dinner party to launch the book. And she just thinks everybody's looking at her and saying, oh, you're the main character in the book, which at first I thought was really funny, you know, at the beginning of the book, because I'm like, isn't this what authors tell you all the time? Like, oh, I went to my hometown and my old best friend was like, oh, I noticed you wrote about me in your last novel. And they're like, no, not really, you know. At first, I thought, oh, that's the conceit of the book. Oh, people think they're the characters in their book. And she just happens to think she's the character in her husband's most recent book, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's a little mystery. She starts to snoop around her husband's office because she's coming undone a little bit. And she finds a newspaper clipping about a young woman who's gone missing in Maine. Mm -hmm. So then she becomes convinced that her husband has killed this young woman. Oh, boy. Because why else would he have the newspaper clipping kind of hidden in his office that she's snooping in? This book has a lot going on. (laughs) It is dark. It is really dark. And I think I don't really understand why she refers to herself as Mrs. March through the whole book. So that's something I'm really looking forward to getting feedback from my fellow book clubbies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's intriguing. Now, does the husband have much of a voice? Like, does he try to combat her fears or does he not really present? He's present in the book. I don't think people realize it's really an inner monologue of what's happening in her mind. So I don't think he realizes what's happening in -hmm. her mind. Okay. Also, they have a child together and she's mothering while all of this is happening at the same time. So much of it is about that feeling you have of people watching you. Mm-hmm. and paying attention to you. So it's really uncomfortable. The author does a fantastic job. It's a debut. Wow. It's very well written. It was just like, I'm reading at one point, I just turned to the gentleman caller. I'm like, I don't want to be reading this dark book on vacation. <laughs> and he's like, don't. I said, I have to. I mean, I'm glad I read it. I just, you know, I usually like to go more for cupcakes on vacation. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, Mrs. March, Virginia Fado. Well, kudos to you for following through and honoring your book club. And I do hope you share some feedback from your group. I will. Yeah. I should say, I think it's going to make an amazing conversation. We'll see if I'm right about that. Okay. So I'll, I'll report back and see if people should get it for their book club. Great. Well, I didn't read anything else, but I did just want to throw out there that Alan read An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good, which we had talked about in a episode recently, Helene Turston. This is her follow-up, and she said it's total fun. That's oh, what Aunt Ellen good. had to say. So good. Yeah. Thank you, Aunt Ellen, yeah. our roving reader. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, Biblio Adventures. Have you been on any? I went on one adventure. You know, I had high hopes that when we went to Martha's Vineyard, we would visit three bookstores that I mentioned on the last episode. Well, due to COVID, we really just stayed away from stores and people, Mm -hmm. really. We did all outside activities. So what we did find was a really cool little free library on Chappaquiddick Island, which we had never been to. But the only way to get there if you don't have your own boat is to take this tiny little three-car ferry, which is really fun. We were on our bikes, so we hopped on this ferry. And then we biked around and we were passing the community center and there was this cool little free library. And what I loved about it, other than, of course, it's a little free library filled with books, is it had different size slots and they had a game in there, a fellow, and a puzzle. 
which I thought was so brilliant. I've never seen that before. Have you? That's a great idea. I don't, I have not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really liked it. Emily posted a picture on our social media if you want to check it out because there was a tall, thin slot, which I thought was really brilliant too for just oversized books because they sometimes get so damaged in little free libraries because they just don't fit that yeah. well and people rummage around. I know. And in that tall slot was a book on shells, mm. like a big coffee table book on shells that if I weren't on my bike, I probably would have taken. But yeah, so super cool. We just didn't want to go into any stores. So we didn't get into any of the bookstores there, but we did get to see a cool little free library. That's awesome. What about you? Yeah. Well, I did not go to Boston as planned. Those plans got uh, rescheduled. But I did go up to Amherst on the Saturday after class because I wanted to visit the Amherst bookstore, which is a really cool store with a lot of great used books. And then they also sell textbooks for Amherst and also UMass. So I got to browse around and look at those a little bit. I did buy two books. So I did follow through and I got the new Lauren Groff Matrix. And then I also picked up a copy of P. Jelly Clark's A Master of Gen. Clark is the author of The Haunting of Tramcar 015, which was one of my favorite reads a couple years ago. I really enjoyed that. That was more of a novella-sized story. This new book, which did just come out this year, A Master of Gen, is set in that same world. So it's Cairo, Egypt, around 1912, I think it is or so. But there are kind of sci-fi things going on and spirits and gods and goddesses. So I look forward to getting into that. That will be a nice winter read eventually. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, and then, okay, so I debated whether or not this was a biblio adventure. But I figured if Bob Dylan could win the Nobel Prize <laughs> in Literature, this could be a biblio adventure. <laughs> okay, she's a rebel, y'all. Let's go. <laughs> Let's hear it. Well, I have to thank Aunt Ellen again, because this is a recommendation from her. We were texting you know, about an elderly lady is up to no good and then vampire stuff because we're both vampire fans. And she told me about a new Netflix series called Midnight Mass. Wow. I completely binged it. And she did too. <laughs> so Mass like M-A-S-S? Yes. Okay. Midnight Mass Catholic Church oh. is what's happening here. Oh my gosh. This is such a good series. I really, I watched it. I got hooked really early. It has a lot of darkness humor though as well and it's uh created and directed by mike flanagan who did the haunting of hill house series a couple years ago that i really enjoyed that was more inspired by shirley jackson's the haunting of hill house and not like a faithful adaptation by any means but i still enjoy that very much so this is a story about an island that's dying it's a small fishing island a son who had killed somebody while drunk driving is coming home. The old priest had been sent away on a trip to the Holy Land, and he doesn't come back because he's not well, and a young priest comes in his place. That kind of sets everything up. I really appreciated the religious conversation, the philosophical conversation. Mike Flanagan talks about how he has his own push and pull with the Catholic Church. He grew up in the Catholic Church. He was a altar boy. And he incorporates also, though, atheist, philosophy, agnostic, and then also physics. You know, what happens when we die mm -hmm. is kind of the theme of this. Death is the theme and the fear of death, I would say, is one of the themes anyway. 
really enjoyed it. And I have to say, I'm going to start looking at screenplays as literature. Yeah, for sure. Because I think good ones are. So this is fiction. This is fiction. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. And uh, Mike Flanagan wrote the screenplay. Okay. So it's not loosely based on anything. No. Okay. Not at it. all. If it's based on anything, it's based on the author's own or the screenwriter's own challenge between the Catholic Church and other beliefs that yeah. he has. Yeah. Yeah. Age old. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I wasn't raised Catholic. I was raised Lutheran, but I was an altar girl for a while. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> really good, really good stuff. Thank you, Aunt Ellen, for recommending that. And another biblio adventure that I kind of laughed because, well, to myself anyway, I got my hair cut this morning. And where the salon is actually in the home of Fitz Green Halleck, who was a poet of the Knickerbocker group. He was born and grew up in Guilford, moved to New York for most of his adulthood, and then moved back to Guilford and lived with his sister. And he and his sister both died in this house. So as I was sitting there getting my hair cut, I thought, I'm on a biblio adventure of a sort. And then also, um, Stephen, the guy who cuts my hair, he and his husband are currently watching Midnight Mass. Uh, so <laughs> synchronicity synchronicity yeah so good stuff very cool i love it and by the way her hair looks fantastic <laughs> thank you <laughs> have you got any upcoming jaunts i do indeed we could subtitle this episode recommendations by aunt ellen <laughs> <laughs> because what i plan on watching next is actually based on a Stephen King short story. It's another vampire adaptation. It's called Chapel Wait. Have you heard of that one? No. Yeah. So this is based loosely on King's short story, Jerusalem's Lot, which was published in his short story collection, Night Shift, which came out in 1978. And I remember reading that. I have a distinct memory of standing in front of my grandmother's house, kind of at the curb, waiting by the car, for my parents to hurry up and come on out. But I'm standing there finishing the story that was so capturing my attention. And I finished it and I closed the book and I remember just looking down the block thinking like, wow, that was a story. And it was a story called The Quitters. Mm. Quitters Inc., I think is the name of it. Yeah, mm. about quitting smoking. Mm. Yeah, that one really stuck with me. Jerusalem's Lot... It's a short story, but it was also what inspired his novel, Salem's Lot, because Salem's Lot is actually apostrophe Salem, so it's actually short for Jerusalem. And that is uh, the second vampire novel that I read and really propelled me forward in the genre of vampire novels. Wow. Yeah. And he considered it one of his favorite novels. Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. He thought it really had a lot to say about small town America. And there was a film adaptation of that, too. So, yes, my next Biblio adventure will be sitting on my couch. It'll be a couch Biblio adventure. You're getting in the spirit of the season, though. It's your favorite season. So, Emily, I mean, you know, I'm reading so much for school. Yeah. And I want to keep reading my books for pleasure as well. But I feel like I also need some time when I'm just sitting back and watching. Not that they're not stimulating to the mind. It's just a different form of consumption. Plus, I think it's just different for it not to be using your eyes on words, mm-hmm. right? Right. <laughs> you you still have the brain power to take in information. You just need to do it in a different way, I mm-hmm. think. I totally get that. I really do. Well, my only upcoming, John, is I'm totally obsessed now with Zoraida Cordova. And so I was looking at any 
events she might have. And there's a really cool one that already happened, but there is a video of it. So I really want to get to it. It was via Books and Books in Miami. And it's Zoraida with Lee Bardugo, who wrote Ninth House, and V.E. Schwab, who wrote The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Cool. Both of those are books we've talked about. Chris read The Ninth House. I read The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. And they're all people who utilize magical realism in their writing. So I'm thrilled that they're together. So I'm going to watch that. It's available via YouTube, and I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Excellent. That sounds good. And then I might binge other things with her because <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed. And I want to check out her YA series. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So before we go on to upcoming reads, I just want to remind people that we have ways that you can support the Book Cougars. Bookshop.org. We have a shop there that if you purchase books, you help both independent bookstores and you help the Cougars. Yeah. And all of the books that we mentioned in the episode are linked to bookshop.org. So we appreciate any purchases you may choose to make that way. Or we're also affiliates with Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut and the Savoy Bookshop and Cafe in Westerly, Rhode Island. And if you're interested in some of these audiobooks we talk about, not the audible ones necessarily, but the others. Libro.fm is another great organization that supports independent bookstores. And if you use Book Cougars, when you sign up for Libro.fm, you get two books for the price of one. Audiobooks, I should say. Yeah. Then we also have a Patreon page. Yes, we really appreciate folks who become Patreon sponsors. It means so much to us and it really helps us pay for the costs that we have keeping the podcast going. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And all of these things can be found under the subscribe page on the Book Cougars website. Have you got any upcoming reads planned? I do. I have two. So one is a Willa Cather novel because the Willa Cather Book Club is meeting in October. We'll be reading Alexander's Bridge, which is Cather's very first novel, came out in 1912. It has really nothing to do with any of her later themes. <laughs> it's a much more like Henry Jamesian type novel, drawing room, affair, things like that. I really enjoyed it. I've read it before. I think it's a good novel. It's just not, you know, Catheresque, as they say. But for those of you in Connecticut, if you'd like to join us, we meet at the Wood Memorial Library and Museum in South Windsor, and that would be on October 21st at 1 p.m. Awesome. I'm so glad you guys are back to it there. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm excited about that. And then the other book I'll be reading, I'm so excited. It is the advanced reader copy of Alice Henderson's second Alex Carter book, A Blizzard of Polar Bears. The book doesn't come out until November 9th, but I'm reading it now because we're going to have Alice on as an upcoming guest. We're so excited to talk to her. Chris loved her first book, which I have now in my hands. Oh, so good. A Solitude of Wolverines. Right. Yeah. Really so good. looking forward to talking to Alice next week. Mm-hmm. So she'll be on episode 141. Yeah, right on. Yeah, totally. So how about you? What's on your list? I have the book that I got when I went to Ohio and went to $2 Radio. It's called How to Get into the Twin Palms by Carolina Waklawiak. This is a book that when it came out, which was a couple of years ago now, I think Roxanne Gay said it was one of her favorite books of the year. That's saying a lot. So I'm looking forward to it. It's an immigration story. It has a fantastic cover. It's really cool looking. It kind of looks graphic novel It does, but it's not. 
Yeah, I know. They just have great covers and they make kind of these smaller size books. I just love them. And then also, we know when I was reading this book, The Inheritance of Orchieta Divina, and they said that it's for fans of Sarah Addison Allen. I've never heard of Sarah Addison Allen. So I'm going to look something up and go to the library and find something by her as well. Good. I I look forward to seeing what you find. She's not familiar to me either. Yeah, it's exciting. I love it when you learn of a new author Mm -hmm. (laughs) at our advanced age. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coming up next, we have a great time with our mystery man, John Valeri. We always love it when he stops by. Yes. And he has some great recommendations for young readers, young adults, and adult level books. So we hope you give that a listen. I asked him to find a vampire novel for me, and he did. So I look forward to reading that one as well. He delivered. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Impressive. Mm -hmm. And then after our chat with John, we will make the announcement about our next read-along. Enjoy. Well, hi, everyone. We are here today with John Valeri, our mystery man, who has been on multiple episodes with us. So many. He's the number one most appearing guest on the Book Cougars. That's how much we love you, John. Wow, that is an honor. And I love you back. Thank you for continuing to have me. You're welcome. You have been on and we're gonna we're gonna do a refresh for listeners who maybe haven't been around since the beginning of time. Episodes 25, 49, 60, 72, 86, and 122. Wow, there's something scary for Halloween season. (laughs) That's a lot of talking. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with John, he's a reviewer extraordinaire, primarily of mystery books, mysteries and thrillers. He reviews and does profiles for Mystery Scene Magazine, Criminal Element, other places, as well as his relatively new YouTube book channel called Central Booking. So please check that out. John interviews a lot of different authors from a lot of different genres. Yeah, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes so you don't have to dig around on the interwebs to find it. Thank you so much for that. I was inspired by you both. Figured you're all making things happen. I guess I should try something like that too. Well, and your connections really show because you've had so many interesting guests. I love watching you and your chat with the guests in the mystery scene world because I'm not as familiar with mysteries. But when you come on, I always end up reading something you recommend. (laughs) So what have you got for us today? Oh my gosh, plenty for you. So I figured it is spooky season. I love Halloween. It's like right up there with Christmas in my world. Um, So I thought that I would do an age range of books that people would probably enjoy reading this season. They're not necessarily Halloween-y per se, but there is definitely some spooks and some scares. And they're the things that I've really enjoyed reading recently. So I'm going to start with middle grade. I don't tend to read a lot of that age group. That tends to be 8 to 12, 10 to 12. But I read a book that I really enjoyed recently. It's called The Stitchers, which is the Fright Watch number one book. And it's by Lorian Lawrence, who actually is from Connecticut. She is a middle school teacher here, and she now has two books out in that series. And she is going to be on Central Booking. And I do like to read the books by the authors before I have them on. So I picked it up because it was popping up all over my social media. And it was really, really terrific. Um, And the idea is this, it basically stars 13-year-old Quinn Lawrence. She lives on Goody Lane, which is kind of funny because bad things happen on Goody Lane, of course. (laughs) Um, And she realizes that her neighbors, who she calls the oldies, 
they never seem to age despite having lived there forever. I mean, nobody in the neighborhood can remember a time that these people didn't live there. So she wonders, why is this? She and her neighbor and her possible crush, Mike, they run in the mornings and they use that as an opportunity to spy on the neighbor. So they look like they're doing laps, but really they're trying to figure out what's going on because every morning at the same time, everybody comes out of their houses, they water their plants, they stare at the children, and then they just go back inside and it's kind of odd. So they want to get to the bottom of things. Quinn has sort of a special motivation because her father recently passed away and he was a local police officer. And he, too, believed that there was something up with the neighbors and he wanted to solve that but never had the opportunity to. So she sort of wants to do it as a way to honor her dad. They get into an investigation. There's definitely a bit of danger, but there are so many other elements that she brings into the book. For instance, grief. She lost her father as well, so that really comes through in the character of Quinn, watching a young person deal with the death of the parent and how that really changes the dynamics in the family. Her mom has her own grief process. She's out of the house working a lot, which gives the kids time to get up to some mischief. But also, you know, friendship, family, rivalries at school, sports because they both do track. So there's a lot there and really great dialogue. Like you can read this as an adult and not feel like it was just meant for children, which I really enjoy. Stephen King actually blurbed it. He said the chills come guaranteed. I think that's pretty cool for your first book. If you can get a quote from Stephen King, I don't know how she did it. I'm going to have to ask her. That's um, but it was really, really terrific. And she has a second book in the series that just came out last month, and that's called uh, The Collector. So I believe it's the same characters. Same neighborhood, but new people and new mystery to look into. Wow. Creepy neighbors are always something that sends chills up and down my spine. Right? It's so easy to look at your neighbors and wonder about them, too. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, these people are old, but they're not aging. Why is that? It's interesting premise. Great characters, good dialogue, a lot of subtext. So I highly recommend it. That's great. And there's always that thing, too, of we're all creatures of habit. Yeah. <laughs> One of our houses back in Illinois, we lived on a street where a lot of people would walk to the train station every morning, same time. And you just think it's so easy to pick off people that way if, <laughs> if you're a vampire or something like that. Profiling. It's true. I remember when I used to work a traditional job, like the bridge would get gridlocked at the same time every morning. And sometimes you would look over and see the same people. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to move on to Young Adult. And I have a couple of recommendations there. The first is the Mary Shelley Club by Goldie Moldovsky. Basically, it features a high school teenager, Rachel Chavez. She finds comfort in horror movies. I could relate to that, you know, on some level. And that's really her way of dealing with the trauma that she survived pretty recently. She was the victim of a home invasion, which turned deadly. She did survive that night, but her mom moved her away. So now they're living in an apartment in New York City. And she is going to Manhattan Prep. She's very much an outlier there, an outcast, doesn't have a lot of friends, does not fit in, but finds her purpose when she sort of discovers this anonymous Mary Shelley Club, which is really an organization that organizes elaborate pranks known as fear tests. And because she finds them out, it's a very exclusive group. I want to say it's three or four people. They have to let her in because otherwise they know that she could potentially spoil what they have going. So she is in this group. She finds a new purpose. At first, she really loves it because it is just jokes and they watch horror movies. But the pranks 
tend to get more and more significant. They turn harmful, then they turn deadly. And there's even the question if somebody has infiltrated the group. And so she has to decide really where her loyalties lie. Can she trust these people? Can she not trust these people? It's a really interesting book. And it's based on the premise of Mary Shelley. You know, it was basically a dare or a challenge between a group of people that led Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein, which was the most frightening book. So this is basically a group of people being challenged to come up with the greatest, most impactful fear test. So really interesting. There's a mystery about that night with Rachel before she moved that home invasion. Does somebody know her secret? Because she's keeping secrets. So there's the potential that it could be somebody from her past out for revenge. Maldowski is also the author of Kill the Boy Band and No Good Deed. So she's from Peru. She lives, I believe, in Brooklyn now. New voice to me, but really interesting story. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love taking something like, you know, Mary Shelley's story of that night when they all decided to write a ghost story. And Yeah, and there's a ton of horror movie trivia in there. So people who like those movies are going to definitely relate to the book. So it's very, it's trendy, again, really good dialogue, but kind of a slow burn. I mean, it's a big book. I want to say it's over 400 pages. So it's definitely a reading experience. And there's a lot of, a lot of depth there. But again, a really cool concept that kind of pays off in the end. And another young adult recommendation, I know you're a bit familiar with this one, Chris, but Emily Arsenault has a new book out called When All the Girls Are Sleeping. And I picked this because it's almost a counterbalance to the Mary Shelley Club and that it's a bit more old fashioned. It's more of an atmospheric sort of ghost story. And I love to read those too. It basically, it's a story that takes place at a high school prep school. It's called Wyndham Farnswood Academy, which is based on Mount Holyoke College, which Chris knows. Again, it's a very atmospheric setting. So you can feel the chills kind of creeping in, especially at this time of year. There's a dormitory that is haunted supposedly by the winter girl, this spirit, this ghost that turns up pretty much every winter and wreaks havoc on some of the girls living there. So Haley is our protagonist in this book, and she is haunted by an event that happened the year prior. Her sort of ex-best friend went out the dorm window and died, and people are saying that it was a suicide, but there's also the potential that she was pushed to her death. So Haley is not only haunted by the memory of that and the knowledge that she may have failed her friend, not realizing what turmoil she was in, but then she begins to realize that she's maybe visited by the ghost of the haunted girl. You know, weird things are happening. Things in the night, notes scrawled on doors. It's really cool because there's a great library, there's books, there's secret notes, there's sort of an old-fashioned investigation. So even though it plays out in contemporary times, it's sort of timeless in its feel. Emily just writes great books, whether they're for a young adult, adult, they're just really terrific reads. So I wanted to recommend that as well, because it's great for, I would say, adults or teenagers, or you could read it together and have a whole experience. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I remember uh, John and I shared a Biblio adventure. Well, actually, John was the Biblio adventure with Emily (laughs) Arsenault, I should say, and I went as a Biblio adventure to hear you two talk together about the book. And Emily had said she just really wanted to write a good atmospheric, classic ghost type story that wasn't going to be psychologically tormenting to the reader. Right. Yeah. And she accomplished her mission. And thank you for coming to that. That was like my first time out of the house doing anything in public in what, I don't know, a year and a half. And (laughs) now I'm back in seclusion. So, you know, I got to see Emily and you and 
eat a snow cone. <laughs> Got it all in. <laughs> and just one more quick young adult recommendation, and then I'll move on to adult. Um, but this one is Stephanie Perkins, There's Somebody Inside Your House. And that originally came out in 2017. I read it at the time. I absolutely loved it just because Scream is sort of the litmus test for me because I love that movie so much because it's so meta. It's so funny, clever, self-referential, but also it's really a mystery at its core. Yes, it's a horror movie, but there's a mystery that drives it. I read Stephanie's book and it sort of captured the essence of that movie and movies of that type in ways that many fail to. And so I've been a big fan of that book ever since. And Netflix actually just adapted it for film. So it comes out, I believe, on October 6th. So by the time people hear this, they can check out the movie. The trailer looks really cool. But I would say if you enjoy the movie, you have to check out the book because it was so good. Creepy killer in a Midwestern town doing all kinds of terrible things to teenagers. (laughs) What's not to love? (laughs) And a little bit of romance, too, because that's the author's background. So there's definitely a blending um, of genres, but there's some legit creepy moments in that book. That's got everything packed in. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. I'm going to read it again. I don't know if I have time to read it before the movie, but definitely right after it's one of those things I remember loving, but you know, at this point, probably 400 books ago, Um, (laughs) but I still remember that I loved it enough to read it again. So that has to say something. And you kept it. Yeah. So adult recommendation, I've been telling everybody about this book, you may have heard of it, but it's Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. I hope I said his name correctly. He actually is very well known in the horror world. He has collaborated with Stephen King a couple times. And he's also the founder of Cemetery Dance, which is a magazine, but also a specialty publisher. And this book really is a hybrid concept It marries elements of autobiography, fiction and true crime. And I say that because young Richard Chismar is the protagonist of this book, and it takes place in his actual hometown of Edgewood, Maryland. He's fresh out of college. He moves back in with his parents. He's trying to save money because he's getting married. He's trying to launch his writing career. So he's writing short stories. He's working on cemetery dance. But there also appears to be a serial killer working in the neighborhood because young girls are going missing. Given his background, he's intrigued by this. But then one of the victims turns out to be an acquaintance of his. So all of a sudden, what gets even closer to home and he has a bit more investment in the scenario. So he and a local journalist sort of join forces and they start to do their own investigation into the case. And they actually make some progress to the point where, you know, he's getting anonymous phone calls. He thinks that the killer who wears sort of a shroud mask even shows up outside his house. So he's been noticed, but not just by this killer person, the boogeyman, but the authorities as well start to spend a lot of time with him. And you have to ask yourself, is it because they really want to know what he knows because he's from this neighborhood or is it because they have suspicions of him? So it's a really interesting story. It's written as a true crime book um, because he had a love of that. And it even has black and white pictures of the people and places that are integral to the plot, all of which they took themselves. So it's really cool. I mean, you would think that you're reading a true crime book, but you're not. It's fiction with that essence. And then all kinds of autobiographical tidbits from the author's life. And the publisher's blurb said, it combines the storytelling of Stephen King with the suspense of Michelle McNamara. Uh, She wrote, I'll Be Gone in the Dark recently. And I have to say that I can't think of a more apt 
comparison. It really is like the melding of the two. So I'd never read one of his books before, but for me, it was the exact right book at the exact right time after I'd sort of been disappointed by a few with similar premises that just didn't live up to it for me. Wow. Was it scary? Like blood spatter scary? You know, it was definitely scary, but not overboard. Like I would say it's a bit more mainstream than what you would consider of a horror novel. There's horror elements, but I think the story in its totality is a bit more mainstream. Like, I don't think that people are going to be off put by it, you know, with the exception of the fact that, of course, it's teenage girls who die in very bad ways. But there's not an inordinate amount of time spent on that inordinate there. (laughs) I can say that word. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. That sounds so interesting, but also creepy. It's like the perfect Halloween season read because, you know, all the boogeyman movies, like the boogeyman books. This one was just really, really well done. There's a lot there to like, and there's a lot of things to take your mind off the horror too. Like it'll creep you out, but then it'll fascinate you with other things. It's just great because it's a procedural as well. So mm. it's like he threw it all into the pot and came up with this really awesome brew. How long is it? Is it a long one? It's not incredibly long, maybe 300-ish okay. pages. It reads quickly. And like I said, there's a lot of photos too that really make you feel like you're immersed in this world because it's a blend of fact and fiction. The neighborhood's real. A lot of the characters are real. I mean, his uh, fiance, his wife now is a character in the book. His parents are characters in the book. So um, yeah. So it's really, really clever and well done. I mean, it seems a little disturbing to decide to insert yourself into a disturbing story like that. I'd want to ask him, you know, was there something like that that really happened when you were growing up there? Or I don't know. It's weird. Right? Yeah, it's such an interesting premise. And I love when the book itself delivers, because sometimes you read the flap and it sounds so good. And then the book seems to be something else entirely. And like I said, that's happened a couple times recently to me where I had like such high hopes and just got totally disappointed. But this one was the opposite. Really, really liked it. Hopefully some other people will too. Actually, it's doing really well. One other adult recommendation, which you may have heard of, it's getting a lot of press too. Stephen Graham Jones, who wrote My Heart is a Chainsaw. This one is totally a love letter to the slasher film. And it even makes the case that Jaws, in essence, is a slasher film. And I know that you love that movie, Chris. (laughs) Um, Right? You gotta love Jaws. Who doesn't love Jaws? I was just at Jaws Bridge two days ago. I was. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, this has like a whole ending scene that plays out in the water and it's just a bloody massacre. Like this one is very disturbing, but it starts slow. It's a slow burn. Like there's a lot of development of character in place before it gets to that point. But the premise really is there is a teenager in town. Her name is Jay Daniels. She's half Native American. Again, total outcast. She lives with her father who is abusive, doesn't have much of a relationship with her mom who's moved out. She still lives in town. She works at the dollar store. That's really the only interactions they have is when Jade goes in, you know, to buy like hair dye or makeup up but she really does she hides behind hair dye the black eyeliner and she's a bit goth and people wonder about her because again she is a horror buff like she knows everything there is to know about horror movies and she wakes up one day and she realizes that she might in fact be living in one like she foresees that very bad things are going to happen in her town she knows that it's a prelude to the third act bloodbath she tries to tell the authorities and they don't believe her she recognizes a new girl at school who she firmly believes is going to be the final girl that will bring an end to all of this but the final girl 
supposedly, you know, if that's what she really is, doesn't believe her either. So it's all coming and she knows it. And it's sort of Cassandra-esque where like she sees just destruction and utter chaos and nobody buys into it until it's actually happening. So it does happen, of course. And she realizes that her knowledge of horror movies is really integral, but also, you know, she's always sort of wanted to live in one. And then when she finds herself in that situation, she realizes how terrible it actually is when people are dying and there's real consequences in conflict. Interestingly done, each chapter, there's a break where there's a mini essay that she's written as an extra credit assignment for her history teacher. And basically, it's the expectations, rules, and tropes of horror movies, you know, whether it's Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream. So you really get a breakdown of the genre, but it also plays into how the plot unfolds. And then there's a great acknowledgement section at the end where the author talks all about the movies that influenced him. I love acknowledgements sections, and this one went on for like pages and pages and pages. So I really appreciated that. And I think he actually even uh, dedicated the book to Deborah Hill, who was a famous writer and producer. She was half responsible with John Carpenter for the original Halloween movie, some of the sequels. Um, she was really involved in Clue as well. So he's a lover of the genre. It comes through, but there is a lot of depth to the book. It really melds horror with sort of more literary fiction. So it was interesting because it sort of starts as one book and then ends as another. And there's this whole marriage. And so there's been a lot of talk about it being sort of a crossover book because there is so much literary merit to it. So interesting for people who enjoy that type of thing. It is, I would say, a bit more hardcore than Chasing the Boogeyman. Like, you might want to avoid this one, Emily. There is splatter and, like, body parts everywhere and blood frothing in the water. It's just crazy. I I know the Only Good Indians was his last one, right? And I know that one was super scary, I heard. And, well, actually, I didn't just hear it. My gentleman caller read it, and he told me it was super creepy. But yeah, I yeah. don't think I'll read this one. I stopped reading that one at one point just because of the graphic violence. It was so, I just couldn't, it just seemed too real. And I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not in the mood for that right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it took a long time to build up to it. Like this is like a 400 plus page book. And the first couple hundred pages are more low key. But by the end, it's wow. Like it, it, Reservoir Dog, basically. It's, wow. it's so interesting to me that these middle-aged writers who grew up on slasher films and these, you know, now what we consider classic horror movies. I mean, I grew up on like Dracula and Frankenstein, you know, Boris Karloff right. and stuff like that. But now you're seeing all these writers write about slasher films and incorporating not just the tropes, but the actual movies, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I have come to love those movies. Like as a kid, I was terrified of them and I wasn't. Now I find them so fascinating and amusing. I am that person in the theater who laughs when everybody else is screaming or cringing. <laughs> and then they look at you very, very strangely. They're, but that that's probably the neighbor leads me- I don't want. Yeah. <laughs> I used to love horror movies. I loved The Howling when I was a kid and saw that in a drive in with forest all around me and I was all about them but then when I saw Silence of the Lambs that was Mm. it for me I was like I'm not maybe because I was living alone by that point with two young children and I was locking the doors and like I don't want to know if my neighbors are sewing up a body next door with (laughs) skin they've harvested (laughs) it's too much for me But I, I wanted to ask you a question about acknowledgments because I'm a huge acknowledgments reader and I usually read them first. How do you do it? I usually read them at the end. Okay. You know, I actually, I just read them at the order that they're in because occasionally someone will put them at the beginning of the book. 
And so I'll read it then, but usually I wait and I feel like it's almost a reward for getting through the book, you know, depending on how the book struck me. But I just think they're fascinating because you really get some insights into how the book was written, why the book was written. And a lot of times familiar names start to pop up and you recognize people from book to book and that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love them. I'm, I always read them. I can't imagine putting a book down and not reading acknowledgments. I don't read notes. No. You know, I don't do that, but I do. Love me some Somebody should just do a compendium of like the world's best acknowledgments, you know? Yeah, <laughs> sure. <good>. Yeah, <laughs> that would be really fascinating because some of them are just really beautiful. And, yeah. and then they teach you so much too about the subject. Yeah, and you can also yeah. see what kind of a writer they are sometimes by them. I'm like, wow, they're really wordy. This is going to be a long book. <laughs> sometimes they're yeah. short and sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You get so much insight from it. I mm-hmm. love it. So do you have time for a couple more recommendations? Sure. Yeah. All right. So I do have a nonfiction. And this one, I think, will explain a lot (laughs) as to where I'm coming from. There's a new book out called It All Began with a Scream by Patrick Maroney. And it's basically an unauthorized inside look at the Scream franchise. It's very timely because, believe it or not, Scream actually will have been released 25 years ago this December. And then in January, there is a fifth Scream movie coming out. New director, because sadly Wes Craven passed away a couple of years ago, but they somehow convinced all of the legacy characters to return, the ones who've survived. So Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, they're all coming back for at least one more Scream. But this book is interesting because given Scream's popularity, you would think that there are tons and tons of books on the franchise, and there are not. There are very few. This is actually one of the very few that covers all four of the original Scream movies directed by Wes Craven. And it's really interesting because this guy had that experience where he went to the movie theater with family and friends, saw Scream, and it changed his life. And that was my experience with Scream. I know that sounds like really dramatic, like, oh, I saw a movie and it changed my life, but it really, really did. Because until I saw Scream, I did not like horror, did not appreciate horror. That made me a huge film buff. But again, because there's a central mystery that is so compelling that the horror, it's there, but that was not the main driving point of the movie. It's all about Sidney Prescott and Maureen Prescott and why did Maureen die and how does this relate to Sidney and the killing spree that she's witnessing around her. But anyway, interesting book because the author interviewed more than two dozen people who were involved uh, in the films, either on screen or off screen. So he interviewed some of the actors like Jamie Kennedy, Leah Schreiber but also producers and casting directors. You really get some interesting insights. A lot of trivia, just for instance, the first screen movie, a lot of people don't know that Drew Barrymore was set to play the Sydney Prescott role. She was going to be the star and then last minute decided, no, she'd rather do that iconic opening scene where she got killed off. That was never intended. And it sort of jumpstarted the whole idea of the screen films where something really, really crazy happens in the opening sequence. But that was not meant to be. Also, Wes Craven was almost fired multiple times by the Weinsteins who were incredibly difficult to work with. Not surprising, given what we know of them now. So there's just great tidbits about that. And it's also really a celebration of Wes Craven's legacy because he was a teacher and a philosopher. And so people have these ideas about him, you know, what kind of man makes horror movies. But he was a very quiet, intellectual, calm man. And he sort of created families when he was making movies. And so it was these really calm friendly familial sets even though they were making you know slice and dice films so pretty cool and it fills that gap for people who want to learn more i would highly recommend it it's very readable and finally chris 
I have a recommendation for you specifically because you said if you're coming on and doing spooky season, you have to recommend some kind of vampire books. And I immediately said, oh, crap, because I had read like (laughs) so few of them. I don't know why. And the ones I've read, I feel like you've recommended to me. So I'm not going to recommend something that I know that you have read. So I put on my thinking cap, which is always a scary prospect. And I thought back and I remember several years ago, when I was working in an office setting, I had a coworker who was a great reader. She would read anything, mostly mystery, suspense, thriller, horror, sci-fi. And occasionally she would hand me a book and she'd be like, you got to read this. And she's one of those few people that you're like, okay, if she tells me I got to read this, I got to read this. The book was called Vampires of Hollywood. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it was by Adrienne Barbeau, the actress. Mm. Uh, and she co-wrote it with Michael Scott, who is a New York Times bestselling author. I believe this book came out initially in 2008, and there's actually a couple sequels, Love Bites and Make Me Dead. It's really a satire of Tinseltown and the whole film industry, because we all know that Hollywood is full of bloodsuckers, right? (laughs) But basically, the premise is this. So there's a serial killer known as the Cinema Slayer, of course, and he's working his way through the Hollywood A-listers. There's three murders in two weeks, and everybody's running scared because they think they're going to be next. All the victims share some kind of connection to Scream Queen Afsana Moore, who is not only the head of a Hollywood studio, but sort of secretly, she's also a 500-year-old vampire, though not everybody (laughs) knows this about her. And she ends up getting teamed up with a Beverly Hills police detective. His name is Peter King. They really want to stop the killer. He just wants to stop the bloodshed. And she's worried that, you know, all her actors and writers are being killed off. They can't make movies and they can't make money with the serial killer running around on the loose. So despite their differences, there is some common ground in wanting to put an end to this. But what the detective does not know is that most of the Hollywood talent, they're actually members of an established network of vampires. And Asana is actually the CEO of that whole network of vampires. So it's horror, it's humor, hotness, like there's some erotic elements to it. But it's really just a funny satire of Hollywood with vampires and bloodsuckers running around. So I think you would really enjoy it. And Adrienne Barbeau, I mean, she knows that world so well. She's done those types of movies. So it zings with authenticity. And I think if you haven't read it, You will. I mean, I remember I read it and then I went out and bought my own copy because I liked it so much. Nice. That sounds really good. I have not read it. I never heard of it. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Well, hopefully you like it. Well, that was impressive right there. Yeah. That took some research, I can tell. (laughs) It did. I was like, man, scratching my head. And then I had a thought, which again, occasionally happens. (laughs) Not too often. (laughs) Oh, John, it's always so nice to have you on. The only person who we've had on as often is the author, poet, writing instructor, Shuli Kaywood. And when I told her you were coming on again, she said, I'm going to catch up with him sometime. So she's just <laughs> oh, got to keep her books. I adore her. She's wonderful. <laughs> That's an honor to know that she's the one nipping at my heels. Um, but yeah, I've gotten to know her a bit. Thanks to you, Emily. She's just a terrific poet and writer. And I even took one of her classes online and that was terrific. Chris was there. Um, yeah, she's so, so great. And I love interacting with her on social media because she's just so genuine and genuinely interested in interacting with people who she might not know in, in the real world. So that's mm-hmm. fun, but you're not going to catch me. I'm just going <laughs> to I have to hack my way into your show. I will. <laughs> I was actually thinking when she said that to me, I'm like, this is kind of like a book in the making. Right? Yeah. Like there's a plot. Yes. <laughs> All right, Julie. Well, John just threw down the gauntlet. So good luck. <laughs> 
<laughs> you can have us on together. There's a real Ooh. mind bender. Yeah, that's an idea. Think about that one. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for all these great recommendations. And everyone, we will have them in the show notes. So you'll be able to look in the show notes if there was a title you don't remember exactly. As well as his link to his central booking, YouTube, booktube channel, whatever yeah, they're whatever called now. Is. I don't I even know. know what it is. I'm the one doing it. So <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. I hope everybody has spectacular reading this Halloween season. <laughs> <laughs> you two are such a great team. I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, everyone. Are you ready for the big announcement? As Chris mentioned, we got so many great recommendations of potential nonfiction books to read. We did. And we were really struggling to find which one we wanted to go with. There were a couple that were contenders for a while. Last night, we thought, you know, okay, I mean, I went to bed thinking like, it's probably going to be this. We woke up this morning, we did some texting back and forth. We landed on a new book that came out of nowhere. And it was going to be that for a while, we thought. But then when I arrived here at Book Cougar Studios, we had a conversation that led us to a completely different title that wasn't on our radar. And we both literally jumped out of our seats. Yes. It's a true story. It is a true story, <laughs> indeed. And this is a book that was published in 1969. And some of you may have read it already. If you did, we hope you'll join us for a reread. If you haven't read it, you might be like both of us. It's been on our TBR for a very long time. And for some reason, it just didn't strike me as being a nonfiction book. It Which, didn't come to mind when yeah. you were thinking about nonfiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but here we go. It didn't come to my mind either when I was thinking about nonfiction, but we were looking at some other books and it came up. So the title is I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Yeah, so excited to read this book with you too. and yeah. with other people. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So um, looking forward to that. We are going to have our usual Zoom discussion and that will be on Sunday, December 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Right. I'll put that in the show notes with a link to our email. Email us if you'd like to reserve a spot on the Zoom call. Mm -hmm. um, as we've said before, it's very relaxed. We'd love for people to participate. It's not hoity-toity. We just want to talk <laughs> about a book. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. We're really pretty much a chill book club, I think. Yeah. I think so too. And then we'll be talking about it together on episode 145, which will drop on December 21st. Yeah. So if you can't participate in the Zoom or that's not your cup of tea, but you have questions, you know, reach out to us on Goodreads or social media or email us directly at bookcougars at gmail.com if you have questions or comments that you want us to discuss on air or just to write back and forth with us. We're happy to do that. We love talking about books in any way, shape, or form. We do. We do. And of course, sadly, we can't talk to the author on this one. But I'm going to try to read some things and maybe even read some of her poetry and kind of immerse myself in Maya Angelou. Well, and I know there's tons of great interviews with mm -hmm. her. Um, so to, to read or to watch. So that would be a good thing to do as well. Yeah, we'll start that good read thread for the read along. And maybe we'll throw some links in there as we discover them as well. Yeah. And please, if you come across something that you think is, you know, a great watch or read, share those links. Yeah, right on. <laughs> if you all knew how many books we looked at to make this decision. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was something pressing about it being the fourth quarter, because I kind of felt like I don't know, like it's the end of the year. Does we Do we have to go out with a bang kind of thing? It's so silly. Yeah. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves and we took a lot of books out of the library too. 
but we're very excited about this one. And maybe what we'll do too in the next episode is let you know which edition of the book we are reading because there's many. There, yeah, there are a lot of different, there's over a hundred different editions yeah. floating around out there, but Emily and I will read the same edition. So we're on the same page, literally. And I know there's an audio version, you know, there's digital, Yeah, a lot of different ways to consume this one. I know why the caged bird sings by Maya Angelou. And I think that's it for us. Yeah. So until next time, we wish you lots of happy happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.